Hello, welcome everyone to Tuesday Night Rheumatology at Room Now Live. This is our month of hard decisions in RA, and we're kicking off with a wonderful panel. And we also had a lot of people, 213 actually, answer a question that just came out, a little short questionnaire this week. So thank you for doing that. So we are going to talk about oral surveillance revisited and maybe have some take-homes, and we probably all won't agree. We have a great panel, and I'll be trying to moderate and hopefully Hopefully, we'll have really lively discussion. So in no particular order, it's the order I see on the screen. Um, we have Jeff Curtis. And Jeff Curtis is uh, was invited not just because he's a super smart guy on stats, but because he has done a lot of um, population um, administrative database studies and really is quite aware of uh, safety of uh, all the drugs we use in um, RA and in rheumatology in general. Uh, Dr. John Giles is here because he's a really smart guy and because he was part Part, a, a big part of the Intrac trial that you might remember is what oral surveillance was loosely based on um, sample size calculation, kind of similar event rate, a lot different. And we'll probably talk about that, but here for all those uh, and exciting uh, reasons and cardiovascular. And Dr. Roy Fleshman is here because he has been an author on nearly every important, well, every important uh, Jack study and RA to date. And so we all will have um, opinions and thoughts. So this is great. I'm not sure, Jeff, John, or Roy, if you want to say anything more formal about yourselves before we get going? No, you did a great job, Janet. <laughs> okay, good. All right. And throughout this, we really want questions. We've saved and allotted a lot of time at the end for questions. And if not, you're going to hear me talk and our group talk more. So please think of questions all the way along. You can put them in Q&A or in the chat. Um, so what we're going to do now on oral surveillance revisited, we're going to first see what your survey showed. So we're going to bring up um, a couple sets of slides, and that's just coming up now. And then we're going to talk about oral surveillance, a really quick bottom line. So looking here in the oral, the hard decisions in RA. So this survey was only, it's only like a day old, and we already had 213 respondents. So thank you for responding. And I think we're going to see things that I was not totally familiar with on looking at the diagrams. Um, and we have about half the respondents are from the US. So looking when we get it up, the, the first slide is telling us 213 people responded, thank you very much. And um, about half of them from the US. We're going to just shortly go in a second, we're loading up here to the next slide. And it's asking an overall question, two questions and comparing the overall answers to the US answers. Um, Google Docs is just thinking for a sec here, but um, what we're finding is that, first of all, there are high similarities in the answers between the, the respondents who were within the U.S., half of them, and outside of the U.S., the other half. So we're going to go to... Um, I don't think these are the right slides, but I'm just going to keep going because I more or less know the results of what they were. So um, on the pie charts, what we have is looking at the responses. Um, one of the questions was, has oral surveillance changed your prescribing of a JAK inhibitor? And interestingly, about 50% said, yes, it has. And about another a quarter to a third said somewhat it has. Yeah, this is what we're looking for. So we'll go to the second slide. So thanks for that. So over 43 countries, but 50% of people from the US. So the first question, uh, did the oral surveillance study prove one drug to be safer? So um, I think everybody knows this study and you're, you're attending because you know it and want to get some further insights. But basically, you can see here, US only is the bottom half and the, the um, overall is the top half. So most people said, 53% said TNF inhibitors um, are safer. Interestingly, about 15% or one in six of you said they're about equal. Um, and another almost one in six of you said, well, I think neither. And maybe you're talking about statistics, your interpretation of the study or other things. And um, nobody really said that uh, TOFA was safer than a TNF. And looking down below that first circle, that's the US answers. And you can see they're almost fully superimposed. When the next question was um, answered, and thank you again for doing it, the oral surveillance study results apply to your use of, was it TOFA, all jacks, or whatever? So tofacidinib, 
um, both U.S. and um, the rest, like the entire group, about half said, oh, no, I think it applies to tofacitinib. About another third said, you know, I think it applies to all jacks. That is what the labels have said in EMEA, FDA, Health Canada, et cetera. And then there's a smattering of people who say um, TOFA and UPA, so maybe thinking jack ones, but not thinking, I guess, uh, Barry or Philgo might not have been available in some countries. Um, before we move on, let's let's open this up. Does does for our panel? Does this surprise anyone, or does it confirm what you think is the word on the street? I think this is perception. This is perception. And and tell me about the perception because it should be our perception, or it's the majority rules, or. Well, we're going to talk about it, but I don't think that this should be the perception. But okay. I think that it is a perception. Okay, good. We're going to talk about your idea in a second because you're going to uh, re present shortly for us uh, a quick overview of oral surveillance. So, okay, perception, whether it should be or not, it's perception. Um, John, any any ideas on this? Is this what you would have thought the thing would be cut as, the well, response? I think we don't. We don't have the insight of how this dynamically changed after oral surveillance. You know, it'd be nice to say, to know before oral surveillance, which one did you think was safer? And now how did that change with the results? We might have seen the same breakdown even before oral surveillance came out. So I think it's a it's a little unclear whether how much changed after oral surveillance. Okay. And do you think the like having did aura surveillance uh, prove one drug to be safer? Do you think two thirds is um, about the right answer, or that it's a little bit less or more than you thought? I think it's about where where I would have thought it would come out. I think it also depends on what the person's interpretation of the trial is too. You know, if you think if you're thinking point estimate, you might say, well, it didn't really prove that that uh, jacks were less safe because there was a point estimate that went below one. And you might say, well, truth lies below uh, in this region as much as it lies above. So it could be people's interpretation of the trial results too. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we we probably will break down hopefully some questions from the audience about cardiovascular versus cancer too, maybe. Uh, Jeff, what what is your thinking on this? Is this what the word on the street is that you've heard? I'm a little surprised by the proportions on the right in this pie chart. So, you know, are we lumping or are we splitting jack inhibitors? And so, you know, 46% or so of people said, well, th these results apply to TOFA, but not necessarily the others that, you know, the pink, the orange, and the darker blue. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, if this trial had been, had shown what it was expected to show, which is non-inferiority, would people have made that same statement? You know, if this showed that they were basically about the same, a TNF and a JAK inhibitor, would you have given a pass to all JAK inhibitors? My sense is, is that the FDA lumps them as a class and in fact didn't have quite the same requirements for safety studies for the other JAK inhibitors. So it's one of those circumstances where because you have a result in hand, you know, you've decided post hoc about what you think that result generalizes to. But I think if the trial had gone the other way, I wonder if people might have been lumpers and not splitters as they were here. Yeah, so really, really um, important points and we will get into more discussion after. Let's see what else the group said. So we'll go to the next slide. So again, the 213 respondents, about half from US, but 43 countries, which is just amazing uh, to do this. So yeah, so basically this is um, how did the FDA warning, or sometimes it might've been for you EMEA or for someone else, um, your own health authority, but how did the FDA warning um, change your use of JAK inhibitors? And if you look here, um, overall it was, um, selective so they're being we i think they're answering that they're being selective on whom they'll use not that this is a jack one selective i think they're meaning they're going to uh stratify if you look here um and that's that's um 60 some percent 63 percent um a little bit less in the u.s only interestingly because it was an fda u.s uh warning but in the fda to remind people is uh, there wasn't 
very good access from reimbursement as well as FDA uh, warnings well before oral surveillance, where it was thought to be positioned a bit differently than in some countries where it could have been before oral surveillance on um, equal uh, selection of the, all the various drugs that you had access to. Okay, less JAK, so interestingly, so how did the FDA warning uh, change your use of JAK inhibitors? So a good solid um, one in five people overall said I'm using less JAKs and a little bit higher, um, not quite one, around one in four people or 27 point some percent on the um, US group. And then where do you position your, where do you position as a respondent, your use of a JAK inhibitor? So interestingly, again, almost the same, not quite, but almost the same. So about half the people in the um, overall, as well as in the US are saying um, after a first um, TNF inhibitor. After a non-TNF inhibitor was a good chunk of people, about a third uh, responding, not quite the exact same numbers, but fairly close in the two pie charts. And what does this mean? This probably means second after a second line advanced therapy, because many people do prescribe, not that they have to this way, but TNFs, then another MOA, and then maybe they're thinking of Jack. So that's a good amount of people. And then... Um, Another group saying, well, it's even after my second TNF, which is um, 18%, and um, I use a jack before a TNF, nobody in the U.S., probably hard to get access in the U.S. Uh, with the, um, uh, reimbursement. But interestingly, 6% are saying I'm still using a jack before TNF, or I'm using it now, so I assume it was still using, but we don't know what the proportion was before. I can tell you in Canada and in Australia, before oral surveillance, new use JAK inhibitor in um, rheumatoid arthritis was somewhere around 40% of new use scripts of advanced therapies. So it wasn't everyone, but it certainly wasn't 6%. So that number might've gone way down. So let's let's again, open it up. And what do, what do people think? Um, uh, John, what, what do you think about this? I think it's very striking that people change, so many people change their practice patterns. I mean, that's basically what we're looking from the first set of graphs. How many people did something different than what they were doing before? And we're looking at, you know, more than three quarters of the respondents said that they changed their practice patterns just based on the results of one trial. And that's really shocking. I can't think of another trial that has had such an impact on practice patterns than perhaps this. Uh, this particular and it impacts so soon after a trial because we knew some of the results before our surveillance, of course, was published. But um, usually, going from an RCT, even if it's a landmark, into behavioral change is a long, long time, usually. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it might have been different if it was equal and people that then access and other things would be, you know, if it was not. If it stayed as a non-inferior, it was just not non-inferior. Um, maybe good, good. I, yeah, I think that's a good take on it too. Uh, Jeff? Yeah, I'm encouraged by this. So the darker blue on the left, that people are choosier. You're more selective about who you give them to. I think, honestly, from my own perspective, that made sense. It makes sense from the perspective of you read a trial, you read a study, and you think, who do these results apply to? And that's how I interpret that darker blue. I've become more selective because the trial results apply to certain kinds of patients, and that's what's changed my behavior, as opposed to the lighter blue that you know may have more indiscriminately soured people on prescribing. And I personally would be in the darker blue group, but we can talk about that. And that said, I still find it interesting that on the rightmost panel, about half of people still are pretty comfortable using this where you can still get it paid for after a single TNF inhibitor. Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, affecting behavior. I think safety might affect behavior of rheumatologists more than say if um, we've had lots of studies, not every drug class, but we've had classes of drugs where they've been superior to a TNF, maybe monotherapy, maybe combo, and it didn't pick up changing TNF as first-line advanced therapy um, in many regions and jurisdictions in RA. So maybe a safety trial will change behavior more than an uh, efficacy trial. I'm just speculating there. Who knows? Um, Roy, uh, are you uh, contrary to what you've heard or anything else to add here? 
Yeah, well, first of all, <clears throat> there are regulatory changes, and the regulatory changes really do change how people prescribe. And I think that's what you're seeing here. I would hope that the more selective is actually kind of what Jeff was talking about. There are certain patients, which we'll show you in a minute, who really are at greater risk. And whether it's a jack or whether it's a TNF, it doesn't make any difference. So you really have to think about who's at risk, right? And then if you think about that, you become more selective. So I would pick more selective, but for a special population. Yeah. Okay. So again, you're you're the generalizability to the highest risk patients. So uh, that's a great segue. Uh, and before I uh, announce the segue, remember to please put questions in the chat or in Q and A because we'll have lots of time for them. So Roy, you can do this beautifully and succinctly in your sleep. So I'd love you to go over what you think are not just the main findings, but some of the I think the important take homes of oral surveillance. Right. So I want to make two points before we begin. One was that oral surveillance did not have the proper control group, the proper control, which it couldn't have had for ethical reasons. The proper control group would have been patients who just treated with conventional synthetic, right? And then you could have seen what the difference was with the with TOFA versus the conventional synthetic, but you can't do that in this trial, and you couldn't have done it for five years just treating the conventional synthetic. The other point I want to make is there were no other mechanisms of action, right? Non-TNF biologics were not in this trial, right? So I, I don't make that mistake. This is a, uh, a graph from the paper. And what it does show, it does show that the that uh, tofacinitib did not meet the non-inferiority criteria that was set up by the FDA for this trial. And that there were numerically were more more events of MACE and malignancy with TOFA than the TNF, which was either intenercept or um, um, adalimumab. What's important about this is, is that these events also occurred with the TNF inhibitor. And I think that that's something that people need to think about, right? They also occurred with the TNF inhibitor, but numerically more uh, with the JAK. And the other point is the number needed to harm. To harm is actually quite large. And when you think about the the benefit, the number needed to uh, to, to to help uh, with uh, Jack is actually pretty pretty low. So if you take a look at the number needed to harm versus the number needed to benefit, the risk benefit still is in favor of a Jack in an individual patient. But what this shows is. Uninferiority was not met. It doesn't mean that it was it was not. It doesn't mean that it was inferior to, just statistically speaking. But non-inferiority was not met. But let's go to the next slide, which I think is more important. Can we go to the next slide? While you're doing that, I will also show you that with respect to the mace, that the confidence interval crossed one the five milligram TID, five milligrams BID. And that's something that uh, I think John was talking about before. And while we're still waiting for the next slide, I'll also tell you that in, in, in track, the intenercept arm had a MACE rate that was about 1.7. And this it was 0.7. If it was 1.7 for the TNF in this trial, tofacinib would have been superior. But again, it's two different trials. But this is really what I think is the key point. It was subpopulated, it was a specific subpopulation, and it was with both tofacinitib and TNF. And what was it? It was current smoking, it was aspirin use, it was uh, being at least age 65, male sex. Very importantly, disease activity, continued disease activity, as well as baseline cardiovascular risk were the most significant independent risk factors for MACE. And it occurred with both, as I'll show you in, in a couple of slides. With respect to VTE, it occurred with both as well, but what were the risk factors? And it was the history of VTE, which is the major risk factor, but also being overweight, corticosteroid use, male sex, being older, oral contraceptive or HRT use, history of hypertension, and disease activity, right? And then for malignancy for tofacinib TNF, it was older age, smoking, the race, 
geographic location, it was more in North America. Why? I don't know. But I think there was more smoking in, in, in the U.S. And the history of chronic lung disease, COPD or ILD. Those were those are the risk factors. Let's go to the next slide because it's actually the I'll show you the data which, which substantiates this. Can I go to the next one? The next one is on MACE, and it shows that if you have a um, if you had a, a previous MI or you have a high risk for an MI, then those are the patients who, as you can see here, if you take a look at the top part of the uh, the uh, graph. It was the patients that had a history of coronary, coronary artery disease, and it was high to the TNF as well as the TOFA. And if you were high risk, that was also uh, high. But if you had intermediate risk, or you had borderline risk, or you had low risk, the risk really, really decreased. But what's important here to me is the, it's that subpopulation, right? But it's not just the JACs. There's not TOFA. It's also the TNF. Next. And the next is VTE, and here are the risk factors for VTE, um, and uh, it shows what it is. But really, it's the history of VTE was really very, very high. I have the right-hand part of the slide because we have no idea why VTEs occur, uh, it, 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 why they've been labeled for the JAK. VTEs don't increase over time. The, the rate really stays the same all the way through, and if the JAK really was a cause of VTE, you'd expect that the patients who are on the jack would keep going. Uh, the right-hand part of that second graph on the left shows patients that don't have a history of VTE, it's almost non-existent, right? But on the left-hand side shows that it's a TNF as well as, as the uh, as well as TOFA. TOFA is always a little bit numerically more more important. Next. Yeah, uh, Roy, before we go on here, do we know, like, obviously, the biggest risk of having a VTE in the general population is having had one. So that risk is makes tons of sense. But do we know or having or having RA? Own? Yeah, well, RA is a risk, too. But uh, but in any in anyone, your biggest risk of a clot is having had a clot, shockingly. Right, um, right. But do we know, uh, irrespective of anti-quag, or most of these people weren't on anti-quag? Because I've never seen in the paper, I, maybe I've missed it, uh, what proportion were on. Yeah, um, yeah, there, there, were, there, were, there were not many patients on, on anticoagulants right. of any. Yeah, I, okay. I don't remember seeing that. Yeah. Okay. Because DOAC might have been for AFib, too. Right. Yeah. So the, here's malignancy, and that's the one that um, uh, Jeff talks about because this actually the confidence interval was just past, just to the right of one, right? But if you take a look at a current smoker, it, it occurred numerically more with the uh, with uh, TOFA five, but with the TNF, which is in the pink, you can see that even in in the smokers, you had more malignancy. Why would you expect that you wouldn't have more malignancy in a smoker? I don't know why. And those confidence intervals crossed. Past smokers, the same. But never a smoker, it's lower. And greater than 65 or ever smoke, you can see what those numbers are. So the key here is you've never a smoker, you, you certainly have much lower risk. But there's still a risk with the TNF if you if you are as well as with the jack. And then next slide. And these are adverse events of interest. And I show this, and I know it's it's very difficult to see. It's almost impossible for me to see. But TOFA five milligrams is the first column, and the only thing that is the confidence interval um, that's over one is actually herpes zoster, and uh, adjudicated pulmonary embolism, but that was only for TOFA 10 milligrams BID. Everything else was statistically similar between the two. Um, the last point I want to make is, is th that, th so I want to summarize it. So I think what oral surveillance showed was that there were patients at risk, if they were older, they had VTEs, if they were smokers, um, they had high cardiovascular risk, they were at risk. Um, and it made no difference if they were on jack and TNF, numerically more with the, T, with the jack than TNF. In another paper that we published a couple of months ago, which is a post hoc analysis of the adalimumab database, I'm sorry, of the upatacinib database, the exact same thing was found. 
It made no difference whether you were on um, epanacinib or adalimab or mepitrexate, actually. If you had those risk factors and you were older and you had the cardiovascular risk, that's where the risk was increased, right? Now, that was a post hoc analysis. It really wasn't structured very differently than oral surveillance. But it is a reason why I think that the FDA and the EMA were correct when they talked about all jets. All right. And these are the risks that you have. What I'm not really surprised about is that the FDA didn't turn around and put the same risk factors into TNF. And that's mm. what I have to say. Mm. Very insightful take on it. Um, so let's let's do a rapid fire on this. Um, and this is where I mean, we're all we're here to discuss for learning. Obviously, it's not, a, you know, one interpretation is wrong or right. They are in our interpretations. So um, maybe, uh, John, what, what would you say to Roy or to Roy and I, if I'm on um, Roy's take on this? Um, where do you think maybe the argument um, could fall or your interpretation might be a little bit different? Well, I think the, the main issue is, you know, what's the differential risk between these two? You know, we know that someone who has a VTE is more likely to have a VTE, you know, no matter what they're on. But how does it how does it shake out when we when we compare them together? And, you know, I think the, when we look at MIs, you know, they looks like there's some differential risk. And especially when we look at cancer in, in the study and, and granted, the numbers are low, the uh, numbers for any individual cancer are low. But there does seem to be an, a, a differential risk here that uh, does not favor tofacitinib in oral surveillance. And also recognizing that while the trial enhanced for cardiovascular risk factors, it did not for cancer risk factors. And in fact, the patients could not have had a prior malignancy in, in, in this particular trial. So I think that, that Roy's argument is good for MACE, maybe not so good for the cancer side of things. Uh, understanding that it's hard to dig in enough because the numbers are are low really understand that but but john the point i wanted to make was the malignancies occurred with the tnf when they had those risk factors and and i absolutely agree with you there is a numerical difference with chofacin in all these right you have a choice you patients by a method check say if they have an incomplete response you can what do you go to? And you have a choice of a TNF or, or a Jack. I have no problem going to a TNF. They work, right? And you probably do reduce the risk slightly, right? So there's no reason not to do that. So I would agree with you 100%. Okay. And also, I mean, I think we would have a different interpretation if, say, uh, tofacitinib had a numerically a higher event rate on one of the important outcomes, like primary and also important secondary, and then it wasn't on the rest or it was only found like sometimes it was more favorable and other times not. It's interestingly eerily how consistent it is that each time TNF were numerically less events than TOFA, whether we looked at VTE or malignancy or serious infections in the older age group or the primary, one of the co-primary outcomes, of course, um, MACE events. So in honesty, I think they, they, I think I was a little bit surprised about the results, particularly malignancy, because I don't I, I didn't expect that to happen looking at previous databases. So, um, yeah, so I, I think we could say we, we you can under we can interpret the this study in so many different ways. Um, then, uh, Jeff, what, what are you going to counterpoint or point as we discuss about this? What is your thinking here? So I'm intrigued by the malignancy because, of course, for MACE, it wasn't non-inferior, but it also wasn't significantly increased. So you can decide how you feel about that. There was a numerically increased risk of MACE with TOFA compared to TNF, but there was a statistically significant difference for cancer. The thing, though, that I would remind people that sometimes gets a little bit lost, those cancer curves didn't diverge until about month 18 and beyond, meaning that the rates of cancer were basically spot on the same in both groups until you hit a year and a half. Well, a year and a half is kind of a long time. By that time, you've almost certainly decided, you know, is this drug working well? Did it get my patient into remission? Like if she's feeling fantastically, she might feel a little bit different for you to say, okay, now you have to stop this medicine because now I'm worried about a small increase in cancer risk. If she's in remission and has zero swollen and tender joints, 
that's probably a big deal to her and there may be a lot of upside. So when I talked about this to patients and we kind of went through the pros and the cons, you know, this is not like, oh, you definitely have an increased risk for cancer on day one. Assuming this is a real finding based on this trial's results, it looks like there's not that much separation until you're beyond a year into it. Yeah, but I want to make a point. I want to make a point about that. So the risk of cancer was actually lung cancer, as you know, and that was actually the U.S., not the rest of the world. The U.S. is 25 percent of the population. Um, so the rest of the world really was 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 not different. Um, uh, but but I think that, you know, what you say does make a little bit of sense. Um, but again, it's the smokers. It was the smokers. Who have a higher risk of cancer overall. Um, I would oh. I would be suspect if a curve diverged, uh, Jeff, if, bio, if biologically a drug such as a disease-modifying type drug is affecting our risk of cancer, I'd be finding it suspect if the curves diverged at two months, because I'd say there isn't enough time. And even, even very carcinogenic things like asbestos, you don't get cancer two months after an exposure, right? So the fact that they diverge later on might in fact be um, true that there's a biological, there is a plausibility, but I'll say that there's a biological thing happening because I don't know what it's plausible. I just don't know what it is. So uh, back, but I, can I can tell you what it is. So tough okay. in a does affect the natural killer cell, right? More so than the other jacks. Um, so that may be a reason why you see this, right? That may be the reason why you see this. Yeah. So I think I we're gonna come, we're gonna circle back to this. And I want to get your opinions on a couple other things. What about other diseases and what about the other jacks? But we do have some uh, great questions. One is something that um, I won't be able to answer. So Dr. Barbosa is saying um after TNF inhibitor failure prior to using a jack in the US, is um this is is it the economics of uh, pushing that the biosimilars now that you have at least one approved in the US and I probably 20 more to come very soon. But for the biosimilars, is it um, is it patient selection, avoiding the optics? Is it this real difference in MACE? Or is it um, maybe things will change? Um, I'll even change the question slightly. Maybe it'll change as um, you have generic uh, jacks, because we actually have generic jacks in Canada, one jack so far, of course, tofacitinib. Anyone want to um, try to shed light on uh, what you think in the mind of the FDA, the requirement of using a jack post-TNF, or will it be post even more TNFs because biosimilars will be out economically, or what do you think? Why, why would you use a TNF, you biosimilar TNF, if a patient failed to TNF? Why would you do that? I think some people were doing TNF to TNF in their answer. We had a, a, a proportion a bit higher in Europe, well, in the rest of the world than in US. But so you're saying, well, you'd go TNF to other MOA no matter what the other MOA, right? Is that what you're telling me? Usually. I mean, it depends on whether you're a primary non-responder or a secondary non-responder. If you're a secondary non-responder, sure, you can go to another TNF. But if you're a primary non-responder, why would you go to a TNF? For cost? So you can use something cheap that doesn't work? Well, your guidelines do suggest that you could, but it's not, it's the least durable option going TNF to TNF in many RA patients. Durability is second TNF. That's another discussion is but the, the legitimacy of the ACR guideline. Yeah. We well, and we won't get it. Someone's going to talk about guidelines. Don't worry. And also, in room now, there's discussion of guidelines. Are they bogus or not? I don't mean bogus. I'm just saying guidelines. What's your interpretation? Um, okay, we got another question here that's come in. So, looking at um, uh, what do we know about biologically plausible mechanisms for the possible increased risk of MACE and cancer on tofacitinib patients from oral surveillance? So, we've already had some chiming in about the natural killer cells. Any any other biological plausible things that you've read about or that you think uh, people have bounced around? Well, no, for, that's these activity. Uh, sorry, go ahead, John. Well, for MACE, you know, there is but there may be some biological plausibility that that uh, inhibiting TNF may be more stabilizing for plaques than than maybe the IL-6 inhibition perhaps of, of a JAK inhibitor or, or other mechanisms. 
Um, we do see differences in, in how patients respond in terms of cardiovascular risk factors, although that doesn't seem to be part of the mechanism here in terms of lipids going up with Jackson IL-6 inhibitors, but not with TNF inhibitors to the extent, same extent. So it's probably there, there may just be a biologically a more protective effect of the TNF inhibitors on these people. They already have coronary disease. It's silent and you don't stabilize the plaxus successfully with tofacitinib. There's some animal data about how uh, tofacitinib affects the plaques in, um, in mice who are atherosclerosis prone. It does seem to have some protective effect in mice. And in some very, very small studies of looking at uh, cardiac PET CT, for example, looking at what happens to the inflammation in plaques, it doesn't seem to change that inflammation very much, um, whereas we know that TNF inhibitors do do that. So um, the question about why we see this could just be that TNF inhibitors are just better at protecting the atherosclerosis. But, but, but I'm a little confused because the cardiovascular events occurred with a TNF in patients who are at risk or had an MI. Well, they're not perfect. And it, was, and, like, and, it, and it, wasn't, and it wasn't that different. Yeah, it's, it's just like the COVID vaccine, right? Some people get COVID when they get a COVID vaccine, and some mm -hmm. people on a TNF inhibitor are primed to have a cardiovascular event. Well, that's a more major risk factor. All our risk factors, to remind everybody, are RA is a, obviously a risk factor, but it's not as major a risk factor as the traditional risk factors. And our drugs, some are risk factors like glucocorticoids and NSAIDs, some NSAIDs at least, and they're not major risk factors, they're minor risk factors. So the big risk factors should always be more common to have the events in high-risk people. Low-risk people have less events, but still can have events. High-risk people have more events. So um, I think Jeff wants to weigh in and ask you something, John, about Intract. But before he does, I'm going to say two things. The rate in the Intract trial, if tofacitinib had their rate and the Intract trial was on, they would have been highly protective, interestingly. Maybe in 10 years, we're so much better at treating lipids and stuff. That's one comment. But the other comment is, there is no way in heck, but I could be wrong, but I'll be very emphatically wrong then. There's no way in heck that slightly changing lipids is going to have any effect on having a cardiovascular event in, unless if you have 100,000 people, it's going to have no increased event rate for a decade or two. The horizon of number needed to treat in a high-risk patient when you give a lipid-lowering drug, you're protecting people 8, 10, 15 years out. So I don't believe the lipid mechanism has anything to do with Anything other than somebody at the FDA that might be a lot smarter than me thought it had um, doesn't have any idea in my mind that it's doing anything perversely in the next 18 to months to five years. But just my little point. So with that in mind, I think because I think Jeff might be talking about Intract as well. So, um, Jeff, what did, what did you want to say about this? Well, John, I wanted to comment on the other large RA cardiovascular safety study, the one that obviously you were so heavily involved in. So. Oral surveillance uh, being second, but perhaps much more talked about for reasons uh, that we're talking about it tonight. You know, there was no difference between tocilizumab and, and another TNF, a Tanercept. And of course, many people in oral surveillance got a Tanercept. But I wonder if you could speak to the event rates in Intract and then just think about how that relates to the underlying populations about who got in both those studies. You know, if the event rates of Intract were seen in the TNF inhibitors in oral surveillance, we wouldn't be having this conversation, or at least it would be a very different conversation. So I wonder if you could remind people what that showed and then speculate on how the patient selection that we started this conversation with might be informed by Intract. Sure. I mean, it, it is very interesting that when you look on the surface at the and inclusion and exclusion criteria for both trials, they're very, very similar. Entract also uh, over uh, recruited patients who had cardiovascular risk factors, almost exactly the same uh, uh, entry criteria. But we did, uh, you know, these are events-driven trials, right? So you need to do these in populations where you're going to have events. If you do an events-driven trial in a population where you're not going to have any events, you're going to have to enroll a ton of people and follow them for a very long time. So economically for these trials, if you're going to accrue enough events to finish the trial, then you need to, to sample people who are going to have events. For OnTract, we uh, oversampled in, um, in Eastern Europe very heavily. Um, so the it really was a, an effort to go to where people have events. And as you know, in Eastern Europe, Russia, uh, especially 
back when, you know, 10 years ago, men have heart attacks much earlier than the rest of the world. Um, and so we specifically sampled there. And, and that's where a lot of the events were. In oral surveillance, most of the MI and cardiovascular events were in North America. So that's very different. So it just goes to show that uh, your, un, your background population, your generalizable population, um, uh, really depends on who you're sampling from. Does that change how we interpret this? It shouldn't when we're looking at the relative differences between the two. I mean, this is the, uh, an instance where the relative risk is, is very important because you know, the risk in ONTRACT was so much higher, but yet the relative risks are different. So, Jen, I want to make one comment about oral surveillance. So all these patients had cardiovascular, at least one cardiovascular risk factor, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Only about 20% were on statin. True. We're and on statin, even, yeah. Only yeah. about 20% were on statin. Yep. And, even, right. and even less. Uh, so even the people who had high cardiovascular risk or diabetes, only 40% of those patients were on statin. So they were not meeting what the minimum standard for being on a statin would be. And that's this is not specific to oral surveillance. This is what we see across the board in, in studies of RA, that high cardiovascular risk patients are not meeting the minimum standards that they, that they should. And there was subgroup analysis that has not yet been published that suggested that the, the rates in the tofacinib, at least the five milligram group, um, were very similar to the TNF group in the patients who were on statins already. So there didn't seem to be a differential effect um, in those patients who were who were protected potentially protected with statins. Uh, we, um, an interesting thing is um, aspirin was a surrogate for having more cardiovascular outcomes, but aspirin, of course, we think reduces the rate of um, secondary prevention by about forty to fifty percent. And so again, aspirin, I think, is just um, a window saying these are the higher risk patients. That's why they're on chronic aspirin, because aspirin's out in most countries for primary prevention, but it's in, in most countries because of various trials for secondary prevention. So it would be a surrogate. But in a lot of studies, the use of a statin is also a surrogate for having more events, even though overall it lowers an event rate for right. higher risk patients. So was it seen that statin users, although, of course, um, they would have had events because they're, they're properly treated. Do we know as a sub analysis on oral surveillance or on any of the other databases that have kind of tried to compare rates, that statin use is reducing cardiovascular events or is a surrogate so it's actually increasing? They have a higher cardiovascular event rate. Right. I think the fact that you are seeing a reduction in the statin users and not seeing that the statins are a marker for cardiovascular risk actually suggests that the the, the actual effect could be even larger than we would expect. Um, so I think that that's very promising for thinking about when I use it when I'm talking to my patients about their how we can reduce their risk while they take um, uh, a JAK inhibitor, uh, you know, I, let's look at your overall cardiovascular risk. Do you have an indication for a statin, no matter whether you have RA or are using a JAK inhibitor or not? And if you do, then we have a lot of reason to apply it. And there's this indirect uh, circumstantial evidence from oral surveillance um, to, to back that up. John, I have a question for you. So did you just say that in a patient who has no risks, right, none of these risks that we've talked about, and you put them on a jack, you would put them on a statin? No, not necessarily. No. no. Okay. If they had if they had an indication already for a statin, yeah. then it's okay. even more reinforcement. And there's another the other uh, study with tofacitinib where it, the increase in lipids didn't happen in the people who were on the statin. And they had a reduction in CRP greater than what the TOFA alone was able to do. So have anti-inflammatory capabilities and, and they're potentially cardiac, cardioprotective in the people with an indication. Yeah, so you're making a point that, that I make often, and that is if you have a patient who's at risk, no matter what you treat them with, you need to try and mitigate that risk as best as you can. Including yep. disease activity going down on whatever you're treating, avoiding steroids, yeah, so, yeah, so, so, I believe it. We yeah. all believe that. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. Although that said, in the U.S., most rheumatologists are not terribly keen on themselves prescribing statins or other lipid-lowering therapies. So um, I guess keep that in mind that although I completely agree with you, 
I think it will cause discomfort on the parts of rheumatologists to see themselves as being the primary people on the front line to do that. That said, I think there are strategies to make sure that it's clear somebody's responsible for it because otherwise it may be that nobody's responsible for it. Yeah, but I, I think you're 100% right. But in my practice, when I see a patient who has elevated lipids and is at risk and I send him to the PCP and the PCP does not do anything, I do do it because it's got to get, and someone's got to do it. And it's not that hard to do. No. And you're already, most of these patients are methotrexate. You're already checking their liver function tests. You're yeah, already yeah. doing the things that you need to do. Uh, it's just a matter of writing the prescription. So that, that brings up um, a, a comment, I think, uh, to, to Jeff. Um, well, all of you here on the call have uh, published widely on multimorbidity, comorbidity of our patients. Um, is it a bit of a travesty that we're not uh, giving these people appropriate, not we as always prescribers, but recommending in our letters back to the primary care that we're not actually managing the comorbidities right? We meaning the physicians, the nurse practitioners, the, the people, the healthcare providers involved in their care. Um, it would be true, I think, for um, their type 2 diabetes, their lipids, their blood pressure, things like that. Jeff, would you say that this is, we, we can do better? There's a gap here? I definitely think as a healthcare system routine, we can and should be doing better. Whether rheumatologists see themselves as being the primary mediators of doing better for traditional cardiovascular risk factors, I think depends a lot on your bandwidth, you know, whether there is a primary care doctor in the picture. I frankly will maybe not insist. I will just strongly, strongly urge to say, yes, I get that this is your only medical problem, but you are still well advantaged to having a primary care doctor in addition to me, your rheumatologist, because I think you get better care. You've got another provider that is part of his or her care team. And I think it is a good idea to have co-management and shared responsibility for some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just for the audience, a, a good thing to think about in the, the GI doctors, the Crohn's docs that work around me, um, they have at the bottom of every note, uh, remember your patient is that increased with, for them, it's Crohn's they're talking about increased cardiovascular risk and please do screening. And sometimes I'll even say and treat like a type two diabetic. So in other words, change your targets to be a little bit tighter. So they're, they're trying to remind people. And I think it's a good idea. And I always say, I'll stick it at the end of my note and I don't routinely, but it probably should be. We have a, a couple questions that have come in. So one thing is um, just a comment that people were choosing two TNFs before any other MOA because that's what they had access to in their country. That's how they prescribe because it's not their choice. It's an access. So I, I understand where that could be coming from. So fair enough. And in the U.S., I think no one in the pie had said after two TNFs and in the rest of the world, some people had, but a low percent. Um, there's a couple questions. So I'm going to kind of change it a little bit to get the spirit of both the questions. So should we be screening for malignancy when we're looking at our patients who are smokers, men over a certain age? If so, how? I'm talking RA here. If so, how? So does anyone want to tackle how do you screen? Should we screen? What do we do? You're already supposed to screen for uh, lung cancer in people who are smokers. It's a you know, low-dose CT every year. For, people for five years than, or something, right? Yeah, for, for two people years. Who have 20 year pack year history of smoking. You're always, I, I think people are surprised that that is a recommend recommendation. It is at least in the US. I don't know about Canada, but um, this is a, a supposed to be a yearly screening. Now we're talking specifically about lung cancer and smokers. We're not talking about other malignancies, but this is the risk group that we see in oral surveillance. Um, so I think if people just understand that that's, you're not going out on a limb with that, with uh, with thinking about doing a CT scan to look for lung cancer in a, in a smoker. And if there's something else that we can add on to that, you know, I think the patient would be very, very reassured if they got the, a low dose CT scan, they're a smoker, and you're gonna get ready to start tofacitinib, they would feel even more comfortable. So are you going to do that come next week? I've been doing it. <laughs> okay, you've been doing it in the 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 smokers over a certain age or just any? Uh, anybody who meets the, the U.S. Preventive Task Force recommendation, right. which is right. 45 to 75 who've had 20 years or more in the past. And that's past smokers, not just current smokers. 
Okay, uh, so CT. Um, certainly, the, those those guidelines were actually based on uh, cost effectiveness of number needed to uh, detect and to uh, treat a, a cancer because treating early is better. I mean, we do have better drugs for lung cancer now, but picking up any cancer earlier is is usually better. Um, so I'm going to throw it out to the rest of the group. What about should we be doing uh, like Australia? They say they do um, a full skin exam uh, once a year, or should we be doing? Um, obviously, I think everyone on listening as well would agree that all guidelines for colon cancer screening, pap test screening, um, breast mammogram, uh, PSA is a bit controversial, so we won't go there for uh, prostate, but that you should always follow your country guidelines. I think we'd all agree with that. But anything else, skin, skin screening, other screening? Well, I've been telling myself for years that I need to remind patients on TNF inhibitors to get skin cancer checks, and I'm very, very remiss about doing it consistently. But it's a it's a nagging issue for me um, that I don't do it more often. But we already, you know, we already have a precedent for doing that, and that's looking at for skin cancer and people on TNF inhibitors. But on TNFs or on anything, methotrexate, any advanced well, therapy, you know. Mostly the data, most of the data is for TNF inhibitors. So fair enough. Others, other thoughts on this? Well, you sort of um, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, you kind of made it implicit, Janet, but I think recommended population screening for your country is something that you should be attentive to for all your patients. Hard stop. So that's sort of mom and apple pie. Everybody would acknowledge that. That said, none of us remember to do the right thing when it comes to preventive health, every patient, every time without exception, like no one, no doctor is that infallible. I think thinking about this in a team approach, anything you wanna do systematically, you wanna do it, you know, every patient, every visit if possible. And in my mind to engage office staff to help, you know, make it part of check-in or medication reconciliation or whatever your procedure is when you when you have patients come in and do some initial things, but get the staff people involved as well to make sure that skin screening and mammography and colon cancer screening is done. And that way you're not reliant on the rheumatology provider to have to think of it explicitly every time. Get the whole healthcare team in your office involved. In your office and the other um, healthcare team that has referred to you or whatever that is part of the patient's care. Because I must say, I, I think it's lip service to say, oh, I'm going to do a, a skin full skin exam on every patient every year. Because even when I'm auscultating, which I like to do heart and lungs on every visit, I'm not necessarily looking entirely at their body. In fact, I'm not usually, but I try to warn people of unhealing sores, things like that. The biggest risk of skin cancer is having skin cancer. So if you've had when you need to be watched. Certain cancers are more worrisome. And we find um, AKs every single day. There's a, a older, we have a lot of farmers around here, people that have been having RA for 30, 40, 50 years. But even if they didn't have RA, they've been out in the sun, et cetera. So um, I think, I think skin cancer information is good for the general population, especially as they get older and especially, um, you know, certain uh, skin types or past cancers because they're at higher risk. So I, I like these ideas. I just can honestly say that I'm not going to gown a person on every every year explicitly for looking for skin cancer. So I can tell you right here, I don't do it all the time. A um, couple things I, I'd like to um, ask uh, what percent of your population that you see with RA in your practice, do you think oral surveillance is generalizable to? So you might be generalizing, I mean, generalizing to the people who have had events. So um, Roy, what percent of your practice would be not just an inclusion criteria for the oral surveillance, but um, the higher risk people do you think? Yeah, so I think the higher risk is Probably, I'm guessing, but somewhere between 20 and 20, uh, 10 and 20 percent. I think that is the high risk, maybe a little bit higher. Okay. And you would have a mature practice, probably like I do. I'm still seeing news. You're probably still seeing news. But, you know, my, a lot of my patients, the median disease duration in my practice is about 10 to 12 years of RA, even though I obviously see longer and I see early. So, um, uh, John, what do you think in your practice? Well, I think the, if we look at 
except that the highest risk people for MACE were the people who have known coronary disease. That would be a pretty small group. If we're thinking about over 65 former smokers, that's a much, much larger group. Um, and I don't know if I want to restrict it just to people who have coronary disease to think about people's risk, obviously. But I, um, but it would be a much, much smaller group if it's just people who I know have coronary disease, less than 5%. But then there's a lot of people who have coronary disease that I don't know about. So I'd say that about 20 to 25%, uh, as, as high as a third, could fit oral surveillance criteria. And then if you add men in, you know, that's even more. And, um, and then if we put in cancer risk factors, if we put in um, VTE risk factors and we amalgamate all those things, then you're, you're getting into a pretty big group of people. Interesting. At least you think that would have met criteria for any of these being high risk. Right. For any of the, and then we're thinking, if okay. we think about zoster risk and, you know, yeah. all these things right. that skewed Fair more enough. towards the TNF inhibitor than the, than the DAC inhibitor, especially early on in use, then we're right. getting into a pretty sizable chunk of people. So we have a bit of variation here. So I think part of what you're saying too, I, I'm going to interpret it this way. You didn't really say it this way, but it's a lifelong risk. You know, all our patients, the majority are going to have um, cardiovascular events like to kill them or cancers. Like that would be the two most common causes of death in many uh, countries that are listening to this. So if you look at lifelong risk, but if I look at a small horizon risk, I guess it's the incident rate is quite low, but the cumulative prevalence over their lifetime to death is not so low, maybe. Especially if so you're Jeff, thinking about the number needed to harm, what's the number needed to harm for anything to happen to me at any point when I'm on this drug? Right. That includes, you know, having really bad zoster too. I mean, that's- right. you're But the number needed to help is very low on all our advanced therapies. Very, it, we have a number needed to help people for whether we say, you know, the, the lowest cut point of an ACR 20, that would be one and two. It's more than one and two, but one and two in a clinical practice, probably. Um, most drugs aren't treating 50% of patients effective, like I won't call it fully effectively, but somewhat effectively, because an ACR 20 is a 50% reduction in joint counts usually and when they look at the data. So 50% reduction in joint counts, 50% of patients on any advanced therapy, that's not so bad. Yes, it is. Right? Yes, um, it is. Because you have a 50% reduction and you still have a lot of disease activity, that's really problematic when we talk about VTEs, when we talk about MIs, when we're talking about malignancy. So 50% reduction is really not good enough. No, but I mean, it's not, it's not bad compared to when I treat blood hypertension, if I'm going to have to be the one treating it, I have to treat a lot of people to prevent one event down the road, but that's a different thing. I'm not helping them. I'm just preventing something later. Uh, we're helping our patients feel better, which is important and be better decreasing the risk. Um, can I do a couple yes, no's quickly? You can do yes, no, or maybe. Um, okay. So are you generalizing this to all jacks? Let's start. Absolutely. Jack. Okay. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. absolutely. Jack? That is the data. That is the data. That's the reason why the EMA changed what, what, what they did. They looked at all the data from all the drugs, including Vaganonib. And that's the reason why they changed. The FDA looked at all the data. It's it's all the drugs. Uh, when someone tells me, well, I'm going to use your patacinida because it's a Jack one, it doesn't. Ha it's safer. That's baloney, right? They all have the same risk. Okay, uh, Jeff. Yes, I'm I'm a lumper when it comes to MOA about this topic. Okay, John. Same. When I get information otherwise, especially when you're talking about safety, you err on on being careful with safety. And I think we have to err on being careful. Okay. With and I'm going to say, I don't really know, but it is applying to all drugs, all, all the class of Jack inhibitors. So um, I, I agree that labels say what they say. Um, and people are asking, well, what about um, a tick too? What about a tick too? Anybody say, yay, no, don't know. Well, it's not going to be used. There might be a Jack one tick two in RA, but RA is not going to have a tick two in it. Tick two has a so the tick two decravacin has a totally different safety profile, and it does, um, but it's not going to be used in RA. Um, and again, you don't have all the data. You really don't have all the data that tick two, uh, but so far it seems that it is different. 
it, it looks different to me too. That's my interpretation, but who knows? We don't have large RA trials and won't. There might be the JAK1, TIC2 drugs. We'll see what happens to them. But 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 I've looked at the laboratory safety, right? Laboratory safety and that, in, it doesn't in, have in, safety. In, in, in lupus and in PSA yeah. published it actually. Yeah. And it really is safer than the other JAKs. You know, we're, we're going to end soon, but I really think that we really need to make the point. Don't get into the don't make the mistake that this is just tofa it's not also don't get into mistake that if a patient fails a tnf you wouldn't use a jack i certainly would use a jack in that situation those they, they, they are very effective drugs and you want to get the disease activity under control so i don't use it last but i would use it i certainly would use it second to the u.s okay <laughs> So we're 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 lumping, not splitting. We're saying no tick two is different. That's important. Um, we've looked at the range of who we think would be high risk people, and high risk people might be inclusion criteria or actual the highest risk who had events. We've talked about lumping um, and putting a whole bunch of events together for the the risk or benefit. I think for any drug that we're using in rheumatology. So I think this has actually given me some more insights. We've had great questions from the audience. So a couple of things. Please go to room now um, at room now and look at um, what's happening with our um, our Tuesday night room for next week. Also the hard decisions in RA. There's a lot of blogs and other things up there. There will be podcasts as well. So I think that really um, the next thing you need to know is next Tuesday we'll be um, talking about early RA prevention, treatment, remission, a lot of great stuff. So we welcome you all to join next week. And as I say, uh, thank you for the panelists. Thanks for Jack Cush and the wonderful team behind him that helps make these events occur. And I want everyone to have a good evening or wherever you are and the good rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.